Are either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. No new superheroes this week, but we've got some big studio releases and some smaller films to talk about as well. Welcome to the Screening Room Podcast. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we are from MadWolf.com and the Screening Room Podcast, sponsored by Marcus Crosswoods Theater, featuring the 70 feet wide ultra screen with Dolby Atmos surround sound and those dream lounger recliners. So get comfy and watch all the latest movies. And we'll start this week with the latest edition of a classic, A Lavish Train Ride unfolds into a stylish and suspenseful mystery from the novel by Agatha Christie. It's Murder on the Orient Express. I see evil on this train. A passenger has died. So they got him after all. You assume he was killed? No, 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 not well, he was in perfectly good health. He, he had his enemies. Indeed, he was murdered. God, murder here. God rest his soul. Someone was rummaging around my cabin in the middle of the night. No one would listen to me. If there was a murder... What is going on? Then there was a murderer. The murderer is with us. And every one of you is a suspect. And who are you? My name is Hercule Poirot, and I'm probably the greatest detective in the world. So this film has a couple of things going for it and a couple of things going against it. What it has going for it is an incredible cast. Yeah. Just stocked to brimming, right? It is. So Michelle Pfeiffer and Johnny Depp, Daisy Ridley... Judy Dench and Willem Dafoe and Penelope Cruz Penelope and Cruz. Josh Gad and it, yeah you've got and the guy who won the Tony for Hamilton Leslie Odom Jr. You got a train full of stars there. You do both both legendary stars, up and coming stars all over the place. Yeah. And I guess uh, well, and you didn't mention the director and the other star Kenneth Branagh. And he's got to find room. He's got to find time for all the other stars and himself. He doesn't. He doesn't. <laughs> Kenneth Branagh, the director, really admires Kenneth Branagh, the actor. I'm Kenneth Branagh! <laughs> you know what? That's just a little private joke between us. I don't want to take anything away from his talent. but in, in, We in... passed each other. George and I passed each other in our cars in the driveway of the movie theater because I was screening <clears throat> Murder on the Orient Express at 4.30. George was coming in to just... screen Daddy's Home 2 yeah, at 7. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. And I was on my way to another movie. And so we passed each other. <laughs> and by the time I got to the other theater, George had texted me in all caps, Kenneth Branagh! <laughs> <laughs> so that's a glimpse into our life. Two moviegoers <laughs> that pass in the night. That's right. Uh, but we're doing it for you. Uh, but yeah, Kenneth Branagh, he just, in so many movies... He seems to just be playing to the back row, this classical stage actor. Then you see him in a movie like Dunkirk, yep. where he was dialed down yes. from Christopher Nolan, and like, there you go, there you go. But anyway, let's get back to Murder on the Orient Express. He's the star, and he's the director. He, he plays Hercule Poirot. Yes. He, uh, Agatha Christie's, you know, egotistical, uh, brilliant, Belgian uh, detective. Sleuth. Yes. Sleuth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Brana as a director... So here's, it is a gorgeous, it is a gorgeous film to look at. He used the same 65 millimeter cameras that Tarantino used for The Hateful Eight. Incredible. Yeah, and it's it's absolutely incredible. It's stunning. Wow. Just these panoramas of Istanbul and the train moving, you know, at top speed. With It's, it's so gorgeous and so 
wasted on a movie that's this tiny, very enclosed, tight space, close quarters mystery where the killer is among us. Yeah. Like the idea of having it be that big and expansive when really the the tone is so confined, it's at odds, yeah. really, with the story. And between that and the fact that... So Hercule Poirot, I'm going to say it right once, <laughs> Hercule Poirot is... An interesting character. He is one of Agatha Christie's most interesting characters. But all of the other characters on the train, it's important to get to know them because they're suspects and mm-hmm. we need to get to know them. And then they are so impeccably cast that you want to get to know them. Unfortunately, you just don't. I think that Brana's face and mustache fill that screen, I would say, 80% of the film. I yeah. mean, it's just... It's way too much him. It's way too much bigness outside the movie. It's, he doesn't take nearly enough advantage of the cast that he has. And then the other thing, to be honest with you, Agatha Christie, a great talent, and she basically created the architecture that every other sleuthing story, you know, from the big ones to Scooby-Doo to the Flintstones to the <laughs> Simpsons. What I'm saying is, I mean, she deserves credit for having really created this, but by the time the detective has all of the suspects lined up at one table, and he goes one by one by one and explains to you and them how they could be guilty but are not. Mm-hmm. You're just, it's so threadbare at this yeah. point that it's, it's almost it a campy comedy. Yeah, yeah, it feels stale. So you're wasting the panoramic shots and, and you're wasting the cast. Yeah. And, you know, there there is, we've seen other movies do it. We've seen other movies start with very expansive shots and then slowly creep into very tight quarters to give you the sense of confinement. The Exorcist, it, is, I think, does that better than any other right. movie. Starts out big and gets into your in that bedroom. Mm-hmm. But this movie doesn't really do that. It's just, I mean, credit for showing you those incredible lush scene, scenescapes. Right. Yeah. But then, like you say, as, as beautiful as that is, it kind of wastes that once it gets into the confines of the train. Right. At the same time... It's not like it's not an enjoyable film, and it certainly is absolutely a gorgeous film. And there are a couple of decent performances, regardless of their limited screen time. Michelle Pfeiffer, in particular, who we were talking about earlier, she's having a banner year. She is. She's she very fun. So she's great very in good in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah. But there's there's so many people, like you say, not only talented actors, but interesting characters. Mm-hmm. That if we're going to get invested and wonder. Did they do it? Could they do it? Who You want to get involved in this and try to, in any mystery, of course, if you don't know the outcome of having read it or seen another adaptation, then, you know, you want to get invested and mm-hmm. try to figure it out. Right. And, that, and one of the ways to do that is to get close to these characters if you possibly can. And that's a trick to do with a cast this large. Right. It was an unusual choice because the, the material just feels so, so dated right yeah, now. Yeah. And uh, I think that, that he had good intentions. He certainly had a great cast. You know, and, and if you can use those cameras, why would you not use those cameras? I mean, I think, I just think he couldn't quite pull it off. So not the greatest of train rides for Murder on the Orient Express. The other big studio release this week is another sequel, and it's Brad and Dusty back together dealing with their intrusive fathers during the holidays. Daddy's home, too. Hey guys, we got a big surprise for you. Oh, is it money? A trampoline? Another pony? This year, Christmas, both families together. Yay! Look, your father hasn't met the new evolved Dusty. That's exactly the stuff he's going to make fun of us for. You'll see. Dear God. Is that him? Dress is so cool. <laughs> Yet I can't picture him actually going shopping. This is Sarah's husband. Why is he here? Oh, because my dad's coming too. Dad? Daddy! Here's my big man! 
<laughs> he hasn't seen his dad in a long time. It's only been two weeks, but it feels like forever. It does, doesn't it? And this guy's raising your kids half the time. I have to admit that this trailer kind of had me. I'm yeah. not saying that my expectations were high, but I remember thinking, oh, this could be funny. Well, I like the casting right away because you take Mel Gibson and all that he brings, you know, his his uh, preconceived reputations, I guess. So, And they're setting him up in the trailer for being, oh, just a nightmare father. Right, right. Because you've got, he's the father of um, of Dusty, Mark Wahlberg's character, who was the more macho of mm-hmm, the two in the mm-hmm. first one. And now you're going to go over the top with his dad. And then by the same token, you're getting an even more sensitive father with Will Ferrell's character, Brad, with uh, John Lithgow. So, yeah, you see the casting. You think there could be some fun there. And, boy, it's another one of these lazy, lazy comedies. And it's so reminiscent of just last week right. when we saw A Bad Mom's Christmas because it's it's set up a lot of the same way. It has a countdown. It has an on-screen countdown to Christmas. That's the hot new toy this year, I guess. <laughs> it was used last year, too. But, anyway, so it counts it down to Christmas, and it's just another series of barely connected skits with little regard for logic or continuity. Mm -hmm. Just set up skits after skits. And it's just, I get so tired of seeing that. And it does eke out a few more laughs than uh, Bad Mom's Christmas. And it does take advantage of, in particular, Will Ferrell's comedic gifts because I just think he's funny. And he's able to squeeze out some chuckles out of some scenes that might not have had them in the first place because, you know, he can be funny with his physical comedy. It just, again, wastes what we thought was some potential there mm-hmm. with the casting. Mm-hmm. And especially, too, I found it a little a little awkward because there are some scenes where things that Mel Gibson's character does, considering his reputation and considering all the ugly revelations coming out of Hollywood right now, it just seemed a little tone deaf. Right. Uh, ill-timed. Awkward. Absolutely. Yeah, a little ill-timed. So that was, there weren't maybe just a scene or two, but that seemed a little awkward. And after a while, it just adds up. There are some laughs here and there. There's a funny bit about fighting over the thermostat. But like I said, it's just one contrived instance after another where all of a sudden everybody gets up the whole extended family because they're going to have a they're going to make it easy on the kids this year so they don't have to go from house to house and parent to parent and they're going to have one big blended christmas so instantly mel gibson sets them all up with this airbnb incredibly spacious cabin in the woods out in the snowy woods oh it's just picture perfect and everybody goes there in a heartbeat and then there's a big joke about brad's will ferrell's suitcase getting left behind and oh isn't it so funny because now look he just has to wear a woman's bathrobe but then in the rest of the movie he's got plenty of wardrobe changes (laughs) countless wardrobe changes even some uh, hunting camouflage gear to change into when all of a sudden we all have to go turkey hunting so it's stuff like that just ridiculous contrived lazy Lazy stuff, just trying to squeeze out a laugh from what amounts to extended bit of what might be Saturday Night Live skits. And then then we bring John Cena into it to even up the uber macho antics. And as, he's funny. I mean, this he, is, is he can be funny. He, he is, is funny. so funny in Trainwreck. In fact, I think he's got a lot of potential to, to be that next wrestler moved into major movie star. He does. He has charisma, and he's funny. And so they bring him in, and they up the... the crisis of masculinity even more mm-hmm. by the end of it and you know the the female characters are just afterthoughts and then it ends up into this great big over-the-top production of do they know it's christmas and you know by the time you're like with a with a liam neeson film parody you're like okay and it <laughs> you know it does send you off with a crazy smile or two but the whole thing is so so ridiculous it's very 
It's better than A Bad Mom's Christmas if you're looking for a holiday comedy, but not a whole lot. And like you said, by the the potential we thought the trailer had, I thought Daddy's Home 2 was a bit of a disappointment, but at least it does have a few laughs in it. And the other films to talk about this week are all limited release, but one that we really liked a lot, and it's from the filmmaker who did Tangerine, which we loved a couple of years ago, a film that got a lot of attention well, for a lot of reasons, but for one, because it was filmed on an iPhone. Mm-hmm. Well, he's got big-time cameras now in a film that follows a precocious six-year-old as she courts mischief and adventure with her ragtag playmates and bonds with her rebellious but caring mother, all while living in the shadows of the happiest place on Earth. It's the Florida Project. Okay, I warned you. One drip and you're out. Oh, come on! Out now. It's going to melt outside. It's melting inside, too. But, Bobby... Out. <sighs> Thank you very much. You're not welcome. The opening scene in this movie is so far one of my favorite scenes of the entire year and certainly the best opening scene I have I have I've witnessed in years. And it just sets the tone because it's a story really about just unbridled, unfettered childhood. Yeah. And it's set around Disney World in Orlando. And the writer, the co-writer and director is Sean Baker. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he does fantastic things with the architecture and the, the structures that the kids are playing in. Big, comical bits of uh, building facades, faces, everything it's, that's on the outskirts of Disney World. Right. And and what it does, because uh, because everybody in the film, all of the characters are are desperately poor. And so it just sort of, it's this mocking, almost grotesque image of this larger-than-life sort of playground, really. Yeah. And then you spend your, almost all of your time with these very small, they're about six years old, these six-year-old kids who just run here and there and everywhere. And the lead, Brooklyn Prince, plays a little girl named Mooney. Yeah. She's She's got charisma to spare, <laughs> she this does. little girl. She just owns this film. She is precious. And yeah, they're all set up in this hotel, which these aren't vacationers. These people are living there because they just have to go on an existence that can't afford them things like security deposits sure. and things like that right. to get a real apartment. They are living just hand to mouth, mm-hmm. you know, paycheck to paycheck, month to month. And they all live there under the kind managerial skills of a uh, character played by Willem Dafoe. Who's really, honestly, the only true grown up. In the movie. Yeah, he's and trying he, to ride herd on not only the kids, but their parents right. as well. And he's just, it's a wonderful performance. It is such a, a tender, lovely, loving performance. I, I, I was so struck by it, but also by the woman who plays Mooney's mom. Yeah, she, her name is Bria Venate. I think. And she was found by Sean Baker on Instagram. Yeah. He was looking for a certain look. She's a total novice. Yes. And he found her on Instagram. And yeah, she does a great job. Oh my God, she owns it. Because here's the thing. She's obviously was not particularly old when she had her own daughter. And she and Prince have such lovely on-screen chemistry. Like they're just playing together, you know. And it generates this really, his, his fascination, Sean Baker's fascination in this movie, I think, is kind of this blurring of the lines between adulthood and childhood. Yeah. And then so he sets them in this grotesque playground world, you know, and, and nobody has any real responsibilities. But what they do have to do is try to just make enough money to be able to pay Bobby at the end of the month so they can stay for another, you know. Yeah, you Bobby, know, he tells stories you don't get to hear, this filmmaker, right. just right. like Tangerine. Right. Uh, in Tangerine, it was inside the world of, of hookers and transgender people of L.A., 
And now we're going to, yeah, right outside of Disney World in Orlando. And Bobby is played by Willem Dafoe. On one hand, he has to be tough. He has to enforce the rules because he's got a boss. But on the other hand, you get the feeling that he cares about these yes, people. Yes, very and he much. Wants them, yes, he wants them to make out all right. And what I like about this movie is, is you know, it's, it's rare in a film that you spend this much time with a group of people who are this poor and who many of them are making very bad decisions, but the film doesn't judge them. And I love that, you know, and, and it finds a great deal of true, happy, like really happy moments and really lovely relationships. But at the same time, and a lot of it, it's funny because this sort of these gorgeous, weirdly colored backdrop, it gives you the sense you always know something bad is hanging here. Like this isn't right, you know, and, and, and it's, it's inevitable. But at the same time, there is so much to enjoy while it's happening. I just think it's an incredibly well put together film. Yeah. And Sean Baker is a, a storyteller, I think, that we need, the kind of storyteller yeah. that we need in the movies. Now, I will admit, I didn't like this quite as much as you did. I didn't like it quite as much as Tangerine. I thought there were moments in it where it seemed maybe a little manipulative to put Mooney, Brooklyn Prince, in situations where she can be precocious mm-hmm. on purpose. Mm-hmm. Not a big, big detriment for me, but I, I think you liked it just a little bit more than I did. But that's not to say I didn't like it. I would recommend it. In fact, we both would recommend The Florida Project this week. Another one in limited release. It's the latest by another director that we like, Todd Haynes. The story of a young boy in the Midwest told simultaneously with a tale about a young girl in New York from 50 years ago as they both seek the same mysterious connection. It's called Wonderstruck. How do you know my name? 30 seconds into the movie, you're going to think to yourself, this reminds me of that Scorsese movie, Hugo. <laughs> yes. And there's good reason. The Both films come from source material written and drawn by the juvenile author, Brian Selznick. Right. And if you're not familiar with his novels, they are amazing, dense. There'd be like seven, 800 page works of art because there's almost no text in any of them. Just these incredibly intricate, gorgeous pencil drawings. And and for that reason, both films, Hugo and Wonderstruck, look glorious because there is so much that the director already has to work with. And in fact, mm-hmm. Hugo won Best Cinematography. Yeah, it did. It looked fantastic. The problem, and I'm not, for me, it was the same problem with Hugo. These two particular directors are not really suited that well. Yeah, Scorsese did Hugo. Whimsical and earnest mm-hmm. children's fare, yeah, really. Because, you know, Todd Haynes did movies like Carol mm. and Far From Heaven. And you're right, that is a whole different tone than a movie like this. And it, it was an interesting choice, but, but an ambitious choice, but one that we think maybe just didn't come off as well as it might have. No, I think you're right. It does look gorgeous. The film looks gorgeous. And uh, I think all of Todd Haynes' films... They, they have this sort of undercurrent of, of a longing to belong, right? And this film yes. definitely has that as well. So you start in this 1927. It's the film. It's in black and white. And in a lot of ways, it itself comes across like a silent picture. And, and for a couple of reasons. One is that the lead, a little girl, is deaf and does not want to learn to speak. And she's having problems with her dad. And so she escapes to New York so that she can find her favorite silent film star, who now on the advent of talkies is going to be a Broadway star. Mm-hmm. So 50 years later, a little boy uh, who has, has recently lost his mother and has just lost his hearing. And he decides to go to New York, to Queens, to, in search of the father he never met based on one clue that he has. And then the two lives 
intertwine in unusual ways. It's very, very sweet. It's probably too sweet. I mean, the problem is it, it does look beautiful. It really, really is a gorgeous movie. And the, the, the 1970s part of it, there's so much attention to detail, these garish colors. It's really great. And it's, and it's a lovely offset to the very sort of elegant black and white of the 1920s section. It's just the movie feels like it's not directed at adults. Like there are things mm-hmm. we would, it's, it's not magical in a way that I think was going to appeal to many adults. I think it's too slow moving to appeal to many children. And I don't think Todd Haynes fans are going to particularly care for it. And that is Wonderstruck. One more limited release to talk about this week. And it's a story of a virus spreading through an office complex, causing white collar workers to act out their worst impulses. It's called mayhem. What the hell is going on? Say hello to the ID7 virus. All traces of the virus should be eliminated in approximately eight hours. What are we supposed to do for the next eight hours? Try to remain calm. Stephen Yoon stars from The Walking Dead. Yeah. Right? It's a fun, interesting idea, right? I kept watching it as it opens up, thinking about this lovely, incredibly sweet woman I used to work with who would get bronchitis every time she got on an airplane. And she would come back to work and hack and cough and spit. Spew DNA all over that office. And that's how this sort of starts, right? There's a virus. It's called the red-eye virus. And what it does basically is inhibits your inhibitors. So you just, you really have a hard time controlling your emotions. And this particular law office, Yoon's character, Derek, he ascended the ranks to kind of mid-level white collar because he found a loophole for a man who was accused of murder while he had the virus, mm. he killed someone. And because this firm got this man off saying that he was unable to control his emotions. Well, then when the firm finds itself in quarantine lockdown because the virus is free and run about there. Well, nobody on earth understands that you can get away with anything you want to get away with better than Derek. And it just happens that moments before lockdown, Derek got fired. He got scapegoated. So anyway, basically, the whole movie is nothing but catharsis for anybody who has ever hated their boss, like felt put down at work, felt overworked. You know what I mean? That's I think really there's an audience for that. I think there is. Yeah. <laughs> so that is Mayhem wrapping up the new releases in theaters this week and a bunch coming out on home video, Blu-ray, DVD, the whole bit. We'll run those down and we'll start off with Cars 3. It's Disney Pixar. And for for our money, the Cars series, the weakest yeah, definitely. of the Disney Pixar series. But this one's certainly better than Cars 2, which right. I thought was an outright embarrassment. Lightning McQueen, Owen Wilson is back. He's feeling a little bit past his prime. He's getting kind of lapped, pun intended, <laughs> by some of the new techno cars, and he's got to get his groove back. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fine. Again, it's very greeting card aisle types of sentiments where the poignancy that you see in some of Pixar's best, there was a opportunity there they just don't take advantage of it but it's another one that looks fantastic oh, it sure. looks gorgeous i think the kids will still like it though uh, and that's cars three out this week also one that we were looking forward to because of the book but we're ultimately disappointed by is out this week and that's the glass castle also because of the cast right so uh brie larson woody harrelson naomi watts you know uh and and they play uh, a family who the, the parents uh, harrelson and watts are 
not quite right. Mm-hmm. They raise their children in poverty. There's a lot going on there. There's a, a lot going on there. And Brie Larson plays the lead who grows up in this very unusual way. And then she has to sort of reconnect with her family and decide whether their way is the right way, her way is the right way. It's, it's a fascinating book. It is not a well-told film. They make some some narrative decisions that, that I, I, I could not understand. And uh, the performances are unfortunately wasted because they just, a lot of people deliver soliloquies as opposed to actually performing. So I was very disappointed in this one. Yeah, I know you were looking forward to it from the book. But another instance of, of Woody Harrelson's big year. Yes, he's he had is a really having good a hell year. of a year. Another one out this week, smaller film, not a lot of people saw, I thought, but it has potential. It's called Patty Cakes. It's from a director, writer-director Jeremy Jasper, who shows a lot of, a lot of potential here. And there's a breakout performance by an actress who's done a lot of TV uh, her name Danielle McDonald, breaking into the big on-screen uh, parts, and she plays a a girl who's struggling. She's a waitress, you know. She's in a, a bad part of town and trying to break out. And she's in Jersey, wants to make it in New York City as a rapper. It follows a lot of the Eight Mile Eminem playbook, and it follows some contrived paths. But it's got heart. It's got potential in storytelling, and certainly potential in this lead performance. And it leads to a a finale that is just cheeseball enough to win you over. <laughs> it's the part where you're like, are you? Are we going here? Are we really going here? God bless you. <laughs> you know? And so it's not great, but it shows a lot of potential. And I would give a, a recommendation. It might be something you want to check out called Patty Cakes. Another one out this week on home video, Killing Ground. This is one, again, it, it, you know, in a very different way, but similar. similarly, it's going to feel somewhat familiar to you because I think anybody who watches any horror films knows you don't want to go camping in Australia. If you've ever seen an Australian horror film, it's like it's, it's like that's all they want to do is educate you to that fact. Yeah. These people do it, <laughs> God bless them, and uh, it doesn't work out for them. But they do find some very interesting ways to take this. So they take this well-worn path in new directions. Um, and also many of the performances, particularly the two villains are, are ex- ex- excellent. So it's, a, I mean, it, if you like horror films, if you like Australian horror films, it's certainly worth the effort, but it's not going to feel super fresh. And one more home video released this week. One that we liked called Ingrid goes West. This is Aubrey Plaza starring as an unhinged social media stalker. She moves out to California and she just tries to become best friends with this social media star played by Elizabeth Olsen. And this is the big screen debut for co-writer and director Matt Spicer. And boy, it's got a lot to offer. It really does. It It's a dark, dark comedy. And, you know, you're going to think, all right, are we going to be given another cautionary tale about, you know, how the internet keeps us from making real connections because we want to make these social connections, but it goes different places than you think it's going to go. And I, I thought it was really worthwhile. The comedy is dark, the performances are good, and uh, I think it hits the mark in a lot of ways. And another young filmmaker to keep an eye on, nice. and that's Matt Spicer for Ingrid Goes West. Superheroes back at it next week. DC gets into the act. Justice League is coming next week. And I one know... of us is more excited than the other. <laughs> well, that's one of the... A lot of times we agree on movies... I say most of the time yeah, we did. We yeah, didn't really true. agree on Batman v Superman. We didn't. I was one of the few that thought it was okay. Not great, but okay. So we'll see now. 
how the Justice League does. And also, Wonder, the latest for the filmmaker that did The Perks of Being a Wallflower, a movie that a lot of people liked, we didn't. And it's starring Julia Roberts, Owen Wilson, and little Jacob, Jacob Tremblay. Tremblay. Oh, I love him so. So, from Room. So, uh, we'll look forward to talking about both of those next week. In the meantime, let us know what you thought about any of these that we talked about either this week or in previous weeks. We love to keep the conversation going on Twitter. That's the easiest way. We're at Mad Wolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. On Facebook and Instagram, it's Mad Wolf Columbus, the main website where you can check out our written reviews and also our other podcast, our horror movie-centric podcast called Fright Club. That's all found at madwolf.com. The Screening Room Podcast is a presentation of the Columbus Radio Group and sponsored by the Marcus Crosswoods Theater. Tickets are on sale now for Star Wars The Last Jedi, which makes me think, you know, Ryan Johnson, who's directing The Last Jedi, just signed up to to direct the next three. Yeah, that just came out uh, just came out today. That news came out today. That's so right. yeah, another. He's going to do all three of them. He is, and if you don't know who he is, he's great. Mm-hmm. So he started off with Brick, which is an amazing film, but then he made Looper, which is well, he in the middle he made one called The Brothers Bloom, which is nice, but Looper is great. So it's nice to see some good headlines coming out right. of Hollywood. Because did you see that the other big story that Kevin Spacey is going to be completely erased from his new movie, All the Money in the World, where he was going to play J. Paul Getty. The movie was done. It's supposed to come out in like 40 Any days. Minute, yeah. And they're going back. Ridley Scott is going back, and Christopher Plummer is now going to play J. Paul Getty. So just more fallout from these horrible revelations coming out about so many stars. But, boy, I thought that was just incredible news. Yeah, it really is. Not only are they going to do it, but they're going to keep the release date. That's amazing. For all the money in the world. So we will see. Uh, keep in contact on social media if you can. And until next week, I'm George Wolf. I'm Hope Madden. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.